Welcome to The Nooner Show, where we explore the stories of talented individuals who had a wish and found a way to make it happen. They set goals, overcame obstacles, turned setbacks into comebacks. Their stories are unique, interesting, but most of all, they're inspiring. Here are your hosts, Jackie Wallace and Gina Guccini. Well, hello, Miss Guccini. You made it in today. Yeah, I did. No yeah, problem. The big storm's coming. Uh, that's what they say. And you were actually early today. Even though you do live, let's just say five minutes from here. Oh, I'm an judgy, hour. Judgy, judgy, judgy. Uh, yeah, I Listen, know. I know. I uh, early by whose schedule? Yeah, because let me that's true. Let, let's let's preface this by your last name is Wallace. Okay, don't go there. We're done with the subject. And we're you're done bringing with- out some stress right now. <laughs> speaking <laughs> yeah. of stress, Wallace and about that's yeah, some stress. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So speaking of stress, yeah. you've heard the saying. Um, Happiness is uh, contagious. Yeah. Smile, it's yeah. contagious, right? Well, now there's a new report that says that stress is contagious. Did you hear that? You know, I did hear a little bit about it. And I thought, the World Health Organization. Yeah, just that was said surprising. That. Here's the surprising thing. Like, I'm not surprised that stress is contagious. I mean, if you live with somebody who's stressful or who's stressed out about something, yeah, you're going to, you know... Take on some of that stress. But what they're saying is that you can get stressed being around strangers who are also stressed. Hmm. Like you can pick up on their stress and it'll release a hormone inside of you and cause stress for you. What are you, a Labrador retriever? I'm, this is not my report. (laughs) I know. I mean, I get stressed when I'm around you, but we're, right, exactly. We're supposedly friends. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, Something you want to tell me? (laughs) Now I'm all stressed. No. So here's what, I do think there's something to it because I know animals can pick up on. Oh, that's a good point. Animals pick on how people are feeling. One time, many years ago, I was at a pet store and I was down looking at the bottom of a shelf and I wasn't feeling well and I had a little cold, just wasn't feeling my greatest. And I I was squat down and I was looking at something. And the next thing I know, there's this golden retriever in my face, like in my face. And I look over, I'm like, well, hello. And the woman says, I am so sorry. He senses like you're not feeling well and he just really on people and and so he wants to hug you and of course you know I'm a dog person so I was like oh yeah but I said you know what I have a cold I am not feeling my best and she said we were walking by and she said he immediately darted over to you like he knew you weren't wow so I so do I think people can do that I do think some people are more Hmm. empathetic or right uh, well what do they I don't know there's a word that they call people who intrinsically pick up that on other people that they're not feeling well. So yeah, I do think there's something. To yeah, think. that's interesting. Well, I do think we can pick it up. I just didn't realize that we also internalize, internalize it. it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I uh, yeah, I think you. I mean, you have people in your life who you know, all of a sudden they're they they take it on. They're mm-hmm. feeling what you're feeling. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's well. True. Guess what? What we have such a great guest here today, and this will not stress you out. This will aim to inspire you. Let's go. So let's go. One of the world's greatest gems is the Motown Museum located in Detroit, Michigan. Over 700,000 people visit yearly. In fact, it was mentioned in Time Magazine's 2022 World's Greatest Places to Visit. This week, we are thrilled to interview Paul Barker, who is the Director of Development and Community Activation for the Motown Museum. From generating revenue to establishing strategic community partnerships, Paul is the kind of person who knows how to bridge community, 
art and business. Today, we're going to learn more about his leap of faith that led him to the significant role within the heart and soul of Motown. Welcome to the Nooner Show, Paul Barker. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. That title, the director of... It's a yeah. big, long title with a lot of words. Yes. What exactly does that mean? Well, it, it means you work at a nonprofit organization, so everyone wears many hats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so they uh, put them all in the title. They huh? put them all in the <laughs> Just title. Just to cover it, bases. Yes. Right, and it made it sound like really fancy. <laughs> it, it, you know what? It, it does sound very fancy, but it's, it's just great work. It's, um, I can't say enough about what I do, and it's interesting because, you know, I don't think many people... Um, end up where they set out, you know, Yeah. and I'm, I'm one of those people. So if you would have told 20 year old me that I was going to have a title like that one day, I'd be like, what is that? And you work for? For Motown Museum. So, right. That's um, what I wanted to hear you say. Oh, I'm sorry. I do. I work <laughs> no, for Motown that's okay. Museum. At, this is exciting. Yes. It's, like, it's a fantastic place. Anybody who lives in the, the, you know, Detroit metropolitan area, anybody who lives in uh, most likely Michigan or close or is any kind of musical in, interest to hear somebody say, oh, I work for, I mean, that's, you know, let's drop the name. This is a big, this is big time. It is funny you say that because far too often I correct people because they cue in on the word they want to say, which is like, Paul works for Motown. I say, no, I work for Motown Museum because Motown Records still exists. It's still a right. company and I don't want to mislead people. I mm. want people to know exactly what I do. And, but, uh, but this is still a big deal. It's a big deal. And people love even that. It's right. just their shortcut of saying it. Right? Yeah, so even right. when people recorded for the company uh, back in the day, people would say, oh, they recorded Motown. They didn't say Motown Record Corporation, right? right. So it's, mm. it's the word that makes people excited. So. Right, right. I'm curious now, what was the 20-year-old Paul Barker going to do? <laughs> it's such a great question. Uh, like many 20-year-olds, I honestly had no clue what I wanted to do. I had a life plan. Like when I got out of high school, I'm like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get married. I'm going to get in the job that I'm going to retire in by the time I'm 25. Like, you know, right. of course, none of that happened. But um, <laughs> there's what, you know, I grew up, uh, if I can go back a little yeah, bit. Okay. Certainly. So I grew up on the east side of Detroit, um, born and raised in Detroit, 48205. Um, love it. Um, you know, still friends with all my friends from those days, but it was a tough time in the mid eighties. Detroit was the murder capital of the world. Right. You know, you had friends who were into drugs and, and mm -hmm. friends who, you know, were not went to Catholic school, but, um, you were always looking for inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. How, how do you get out of a place like where you are, even though we didn't grow up in a, a bad place. Right. Fact, I wish there were more communities like that today. You know, mm -hmm. every neighbor looked out for you. All those stories you hear, we had that neighborhood, those neighbors. So, but still you were in a place, right? Mm -hmm. So I always loved music. And as far as I could remember, like the first encounter I can recall about Motown was we uh, were at Heilman Park in Detroit and my friend had taken his mom's 45s and we were throwing them as far as we could across the park. <gasps> oh, and I remember <laughs> saying, he grabbed one and I said, oh, no, you can't throw that one. And he's like, why? I said, I don't know, but I know it's important. But it had a blue label with a map of Detroit on it. And I know now, I kept it. I still have it to this day. And it was the Supremes record, Come See About Me. Wow. But even then, I didn't know what Motown was, but I knew it was important. 
Now, were you, you were you a musician or are you a musician? No. Okay. And, and that's okay. an important thing. Like I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write, I can't play. But you anything. loved music. Loved music. I still love music. Kind of like Barry music. Gordy. He wasn't a musician, right? Barry Gordy was not. Barry Gordy could not read, write music. He played piano by ear because his uncle taught him how to do it. And he started writing songs for uh, Jackie Wilson, mm -hmm. who he used to box with. They were both amateur boxers. And so, yeah, you're 100% right. He just knew what he wanted to do. So and go back to your story. I'm sorry. No, so it's, that's it. And, you know, a couple of years later, <clears throat> I'm watching TV and I see this iconic Motown 25th anniversary special that was on TV. The one where Michael Jackson did the moonwalk and sure. all the artists came Wasn't back. Wasn't that the first time he did it? It was the first time that okay. he did it and got that national attention. And of course, his career just, I mean, he was already a big star mm -hmm. off the wall and Thriller was just breaking. But that moment is in time forever. And really? so I literally played sick the next day and I went up to um, the garden and garden store uh, on Seven Mile in Detroit and bought a garden glove and a bunch of sequins <laughs> and hand sewed sequins yeah. so I could make myself a white glove. How old were you? Uh, I was 12 at that oh point. Oh my God. And so I was like, I, this is, I just, I just knew it was something I wanted to be around because it was when I saw that special, none of it made sense until I saw that special. I said, all those people, Michael Jackson, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, mm -hmm. Screams, Barry Gordy, they all came from one company and then to find out it was in Detroit. Right. right. Then I was like, uh, okay, I, I just got to know. I got to know. So that sparked the initial curiosity. Absolutely. I just needed to know because these were all people who were like me. They grew up in the neighborhoods and they were just people. Right. They weren't born, none of these artists were born stars and they mm -hmm. all had to work hard. So I think out of anything, I was curious about the inspiration. Like what... Why did this happen for you? Right. You know, like, what did you have to do to, you know, and was there a magic potion? Like, what was it? And so... What do you think it was? I think it's very simple answer. It's that there was a Barry Gordy in a place like Hitsville, USA, which was his hub for mm -hmm. recording talent. Because as Smokey Robinson will tell you all the time, there's talent everywhere. There's talent everywhere in Detroit, you know? Right. There's tons of artists who weren't Motown artists. Um but it took a Barry Gordy to open his door and allow in young people and say, um, you know, we're going to give you a chance. Mm -hmm. And until then, why don't you be the secretary or why don't you clean the floors or why don't you cook lunches? What do you think Barry Gordy had? What do you think his secret uh, potion was? I can answer that one honestly, too, because it's still a, it's still relevant in even our museum today. And that is his family. So if I can go back a little bit, Barry yeah. Gordy's family... Um, Pops Gordy, Barry Gordy Sr. and his, his mom, Bertha, came to Detroit from Sandersville, Georgia in the 20s. Um, they didn't come here seeking jobs like everyone else. They um, had a lot of land and they sold lumber and had a check for, I believe it was like $5,000, but it was unsafe to cash it in the South. So he came all the way up to Detroit to cash the check safely. Oh, wow. Where his brother, Joe, was. And he saw opportunity in Detroit. So he just moved his family here, had four more kids. And they had their own family grocery store, the Booker T. Washington grocery store, which they owned and operated. They lived above it. They had a contracting business where they did construction and architectural projects. Um, uh, his mother uh, was co-owner of an insurance company. Oh, wow. So all of the kids grew up thinking entrepreneurism was the way. Right. right? And they all grew up thinking that they could do it. 
you know, and because there was no reason to think you couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my boss has a great saying that her father told her. She was like, she says all the time, she's like, you never know the power you have until you know the power you come from. You know, so when your family is a success, you know, that's in you. Yeah. You can aspire to more, no matter what your circumstances are. And don't forget, Barry Gordy was kind of the difficult one of eight kids. You know, Mm -hmm. his sister and brother co-owned a print shop. His other brother was the first black professional bowler in the United States. His other sister owned a photo concession. He was the struggling child, never graduated high school. So those are some really diverse... um, Careers that these they that they went into, mm-hmm. yes, you know, very not much so. n- nobody followed. Doesn't sound like not many followed in anybody's footsteps. They all followed their own heart and did what they wanted to do. Yes, and that's and that's because the influence of their parents. Their parents always told them, you know, because they had like imagine a Detroit storefront, and then you have like the, you live above it, and there's the little store on the right or the little store on the mm-hmm. right. You would left and you would rent them mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. and they had those, and they always told the kids pair up and come up with an idea. And as long as it's legal, right, we'll let you have the storefront for six months. If it works, maintain your business. If it wow. doesn't, then the next pair of siblings can Wow, go. amazing. And that that helped launch Motown because Motown started in that fashion. Yeah. Wow. Now, when you go back, I'm sorry to catch you. We're, we're both like so excited about <laughs> this. Um, when you look back and connect the dots in your life, so... If you think about what you just described as a 12-year-old, that first, you know, inspiration that you got, um, what else happened that when you look back, you can connect it all that led you to where you're at today? Um, I think it's, I I just, you you know, sometimes you can see the finish line, but you don't know how many rights and lefts you're going to take before you can just. Because it's never a straight straight line. line. Never a straight line. And that's okay. Um, Because that's just life. But um, I just knew that there was more. I didn't even know what I wanted to. Even if Motown said, come here tomorrow, I wouldn't know what to do. And so um, what I did when I was old enough, can I tell a really quick story? Sure. So growing up on the east side, you're always taught not to go to the west side of Detroit. (laughs) And the west siders apparently were always told, don't go to the east side. And I knew that my grandmother was in a home on East Grand Boulevard. And so I'm like, Motown, on, it says on the records they're on West Grand Boulevard, so it can't be too far. So when I was 16, I borrowed the car, and I went, I knew how to get to where my grandmother was. And then I just kept driving on West Grand Boulevard, or East Grand Boulevard, till it, at Woodward it turns into West Grand Boulevard. And I drove like two more blocks past the Fisher Building, Henry Ford Hospital, and then there's Hitsville, USA, where Motown is. Right. And I remember being so furious, because I was like, the only thing that separates the East Side and the West Side is Woodward. Right. Like I was so mad because our, been our cheated. Parents, yes, we've all been told don't <laughs> go to the side and this is where all the magic happened. Right. Right. So I went into Motown Museum and back then it was um, very simple. It was only a couple years old. And this and would have been 1988. I can tell you that I can tell you it was the week after Michael Jackson went there and donated $125,000. Oh, wow. I love, obviously, I love Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, Michael Jackson was just in this building, so I have to go here. Mm-hmm. And so I finished the tour, which back then, there wasn't even a cash register. You put $3 in a donation box. Oh, wow. And, and you walked around. And at the end of the tour, I met a woman, and I said, I, 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 said, I just love this place. I said, there's just magic here. I said can I just volunteer or something? Can I just come here? I and said, this I just is wanna- a six, at, at 16? Right. Um, 
No, this would have now been 18. Okay. So I still young. There when still I was young. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I was uh, just out of uh, high school. Okay. And so I said, I just want to be here. I said, I work, but I'll come on my days off and just volunteer. But I, what I didn't know is I was talking to Esther Gordy Edwards, who was oh, wow. the founder of Motown Museum and sister to Barry mm-hmm. Gordy, mm-hmm. former Motown senior vice president, manager of the artist. And she's like, well, sure, come down. And the reason I tell that whole story, because they continue that legacy. They let young people who still wanted to be at Hitsville and just be inspired mm-hmm. come and do that. Oh, wow. And so... I not only, uh, to fast forward a little bit, I started doing tours as a tour guide. I started working in the gift store and getting new new product for the gift store because I was like, I'm a fan. This is what I would buy. Right. And you were just good free help. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then That's day, our favorite kind. It's, yeah. Who doesn't love that? But uh, she pulled me in her office one day and I thought maybe I was in trouble or I don't know. And so she's like, I just want to talk to you. She goes, um, we really could use your help more full time. And she said... Um, I'm willing to offer you a full-time job if you want to come work here and leave the other places. Oh, did your mouth just hit the floor? Like, you want to pay me? It was like I won the lotto. Wow. Because somebody's going to pay me to be where I wanted to be. Wow. And um, I was, of course, said yes, and I became the first Motown Museum paid employee. Really? That was was 1988, late 88 or or. First part of the Oh 89. my gosh, but I didn't There were know other that. people working there, but they were mm-hmm. still on like a company payroll with because mm-hmm. they technically still worked for Barry Gordy. So um, there were other people that worked there and worked at the museum, but I was on the payroll for Motown Museum. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. And did so, you know then yeah. at that time, like what did you think? Okay, I got this really cool job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this and what? What did you think? What are you just went with it? Well, I, I, I was very passionate about it, right? When you right. love it and you're there. I mean, to this day, if I have a bad day, I walk over to the museum and I just go in the studio and I get inspired to this so day. What, it, because you're not a musician, mm-hmm. what was it that, what, where does the passion come from? Like, what are you connecting with? That's such a great question. It's just opportunity. Mm. There were so many people who came out of Motown that were successful that had nothing to do with singing or writing. I'll give you an example. There's a young man who um, named Benny, and he wanted to be in a group. So he was in a group with one of Barry Gordy's sons. This is out in the California years. And they used to rehearse at Barry Gordy's house in Bel Air. And, you know, the music group never quite made it. But Benny knew what he wanted to do, and he took that inspiration and that experience, and he started writing a pilot for a TV show and it became the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <gasps> no way! Wow. And Benny Medina, if you you know, you'll see him on the credits to this day. And he went on to become a power force in music management. To this day, he's Jennifer Lopez's manager. He wow! Was I don't want to name people he may or may not. But yeah. if you go and look him up, you'll be like, "Holy cow!" And we just saw him two weeks ago when we were in California. So it wow, was, uh, he's still thriving, and that's just. Somebody who, again, just wanted, they saw opportunity. Yeah, right. right. And um, even if the opportunity is just um, inspiration. Right. That says you can do it. Yeah. So how long you got your first, you became the first actual paid employee. How long did you stay in that position? I stayed in that position for, I want to, seven years. So during that time, though, um, I was doing the tours. Everybody did everything because it was a nonprofit. We hired more people because we were growing. 
Um, we got a cash register. <laughs> um, <laughs> you charged a bit more than $3. Right. Exactly. And then the real t- retail store started taking off. Um, thank you to Barry Gordy, who, when he sold Motown in 1988, he put a clause in there that the Motown Museum could forever use the name oh. and have merchandising mm-hmm. rights to, wow. you know. That was that was really, like, really forward thinking. Yeah. Yes. Like, he thought that one through. Well, it was wonderful because back then people... They were still thinking forward thinking. They were thinking who their who are their current artists, right. not who's building a museum. We're not that old to be a you know. Right. So right. it was a very generous thing to do, and allowed us that freedom. But um, uh, from that point on, when I was hired, I would do everything. I did guided tours, but I mostly focused on like uh, visitorship and and um, retail because the retail was doing gangbusters, and so. I helped get new T-shirt designs and new printers and new, you know, tchotchke items and things of mm-hmm. that nature. Uh, but also started, um, we had a guest sign-in book, right, where guests would sign in. So I started counting every single sign-in page going back years and years to create a demographic so we could say to funders, who's coming from where and how many people came on how many days. And one day, and I just did this on my own. Who was, was your demographic at that time? Uh, 50% local, 50% everywhere else in the country and world. Okay. And it's still pretty much like that. How did you know to do this? Had you gone on, pursued your education? This was just intrinsic. Just um, you knew what you, you just knew what to do. Honestly, part part of it is I'm a very detail-oriented person, but um, also it was curiosity. I'm like, where are these mm. people? Who are these other people like me who want right. to come here? Because yeah. you have to remember, um, you have to think in 1988 terms. There's no internet. There's right. no, people right. would look at an album cover, find an address, open a map. They had to go way out of their way to find. Yeah, right. And a lot of people didn't even know the museum existed. So they would just show up. In fact, Esther Gordy Edwards always tells the famous story about in 1980s, mid-80s maybe, uh, she looked out the window at Hitsville and saw what looked to be like the entire British Navy on the front lawn. And she went outside to say, <laughs> what the heck is you know going on, you know, out of curiosity. And there were a bunch of sailors from the British Navy on, in port in Canada and they chartered buses and came over to Hitsville wow. because they just wanted to see Motown. Yeah. They, there they was had no museum. Their- she couldn't, they couldn't even let them in because there was no museum. It didn't exist. And that's when she called her brother in California and said, I think we made history and didn't even know it. Wow. And so she started putting her own pictures up on the wall and, and just making something for people to see. Something out of nothing. Wow. And Hitsville is a, is a jewel because even today when you go in, it's exactly the way it is when they left it in 1972. It never became something else. Right. The equipment is all original. There's nothing, um, it's totally authentic. Yeah. So, and I think that's why most people get so moved when they get there. Right, right. So fast forward to your research and you're, you're compiling demographic and you're, you're curating the store and it's all developing. And where does that lead you next? <laughs> uh, next, it leads me to just kind of doing five jobs, right? You know, so we were... Um, uh, was doing retail, was doing tours, became like an operations manager, helped, you know, schedule staffing. Um, just, we all did everything. And, um, and they continued that way until the mid nineties. And that's when we were approached by Henry Ford museum to do a partnership. They wanted to build a 10,000 square foot Motown exhibit out at their place, but they didn't want to just step on our toes. They're like, mm-hmm. we want to work with you. You don't have the space to do it, but you have a story to tell. And so Esther Gordy Edwards being as wise as she was, she goes, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but we can't 
have this beautiful exhibit out there and have this little house not cared for, right? Mm -hmm. So what can we do in equal partnership? So we'll invest in Hitsville and invest in this exhibit. And they loved the idea. So they jumped on it and um, raised uh, a few million dollars and put the museum into the first renovation. So that allowed for a small expansion, which added stairs and elevator, handicap accessibility, expanded the rooms that weren't being used, updated all the electrical, made it earthquake-proof, um, sprinkler systems, all of that. And, and it was now a safe, you know, functioning building. And, um, and then we had this amazing exhibit, but that's when I also noticed I'm now 25. All of my friends are coming back from college with degrees. They're starting their careers. Mm -hmm. And then I started to think about that life plan. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm in a museum that's, we don't know if the museum's going to survive day to day, right? It's a nonprofit. You don't know. And I said, so this is what I had, what I call my first midlife crisis. I'm convinced. At 25? Have, yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced everybody has one every 20 years. If yeah. you think back to your 20s, you probably did something extreme and quickly either yeah. moved or got married mm -hmm. or had children. Said, yeah. yeah, I think everybody, we don't recognize the first one because you're growing, but you recognize the second and the third. But um, so in my first midlife crisis, I decided I was just going to move to California and just leave everything behind. I, I thought... If something great happens for me, fantastic. If not, I can always come home because home is home. And so, um, but of course I knew what I wanted to do, which was work for Barry Gordy, right? Right. So. Um, and he was in California. He was in California. So when that museum reopened, I made the announcement that I was going to move to California. And the only reason I really chose California, um, it was because I had a friend from high school who moved out there and was working in the tech industry and in Laguna Beach. And he said, you can come live with me for six months for free. And had he lived in Texas or anywhere else, I would have, because he's the one that offered. Mm -hmm. And so because it was in Laguna Beach, which is still 70 miles outside of Los Angeles, right? Um, I went. And so I packed up the car and drove to California. Did you work for Barry Gordy? Not at first. Um, the day I arrived, I went to the mall and got a job at Robinson's May department store selling men's clothing, something I absolutely said I would never do in my entire <laughs> life. But I, I mean, I don't come from money. My family doesn't have money. We don't have means. So you work. Right. right? So you got a job. You got the first job you first could. First job I could. Right. And so I was working that job, but I said, I didn't care what happened. If I knew Barry Gordy was going to be somewhere or I thought he was going to be somewhere, I would go. Wow. Um, I did ask, you know, his sister Esther if she could help me out, but... There was, you know, first of all, she didn't want me to go. Yeah. So she was kind of like, you know, well, if you can make it happen, you know, good for you. And had you met Barry before? Yes. You had times. met him several okay. times. Okay. So he's a so, fantastic guy. So he knew you at least. Yes. He, he knew, knew me you. in that reference. Right. He right. wouldn't be like, you know, well, let's, let's get Paul on the phone and see what he yeah. Right. No, no but at that. least you had met him. You yes. weren't some stranger. Exactly. It's, but you know, in, in the Gordy family, they have a saying that's so, so, so true. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. So mm -hmm. if he didn't know me, it wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, people know who he is, right? Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't know who I am, it doesn't matter because then I'm just another person trying to get access. Mm -hmm. And so... So you said to his sister, hey, will you help me? And she said... She said, well, you know, just go and do what you do. You know, let them know you're coming. See if they got an opening, you know. I knew her and I knew she mm -hmm. put in a good word, but I knew she was also secretly hoping that. Right. It wasn't going to work out. Fail and sure. Because yeah. I really didn't dream of living in California. Like right. it, I, and I knew even if it went great, I probably wouldn't stay there. But I did. Like if Diana Ross was playing at um, 
uh, Universal City Walk. I went. Barry Gordy was there, and I made sure I got down and said, "Hi, Mr. Gordy, I'm living here now." And he's like, "Yes, I know. Esther said you're living here." Oh. And so, um, but that didn't transfer into anything. Yeah. So fast forward one day, I'm uh, at um, Esther's coming to visit her sister Gwen in Solana Beach, which is even farther. It's closer to San Diego. And so they were all just going to go to her house because they had what they called sibling summits where the family would all just decide a place in time. And they would all just come and show up and just be with each other. Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. And so breakfast, lunch, dinner, everything at the house, they would just be with each other. And so she said I could come to Gwen's and I went to Gwen's. And this time I said, okay, I'm not even going to try to get his attention, you know, because there's only like 10, 15 people there. I said, this time I'm just going to, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be here. And um, he was showing people on his laptop, this demonstration for his publishing company, Joe Bat, which he still owned, even though he sold Motown. And everybody was just all huddled around him and in awe. And I'm the only person sitting on the opposite side of the table. I don't know if it was a good strategy or a bad one, but um, eventually he finished and he looked up over his glasses and he looked at me and said, do you want to see what I'm doing over here? I said, sure, I'd love it. So then he gave the whole presentation all over again. Wow. And I told him for what, probably the fifth time now, I said, you know, I'd love to come work for you. I said, I have a job, but just like I did Miss Edwards, I said, I'll come work for you on my days off just to learn more about publishing so I could get a job when one's available. He goes, well, all right, call Edna, call Edna. Edna is his do all, be all, end all person, right? So I got home and I told my friends and and they're like, well, just call her. I said, okay, I'll call her. So I call Edna and Edna is like, oh, hey, Mr. Gordy said you'd be calling. And I said, yep. She's like, he, he thinks that's a really great thing. You know, why don't you come down on Tuesday next week and we'll let you meet some people. So I did. And again, remember, it's 70 miles. So it's like wow. morning traffic. It's like three hours. And this was 90 something. This was 95. Okay. And so it's like three hours to Los Angeles and like two and a half home if you stay past seven o'clock. Mm. Because of traffic. It's wow. not that far. It's just traffic, LA traffic. So anyway, I go, I, um, I go there and they're like, and you know, this is this person, this is this person, and this is where you'll be working in the tape library. And this is, a, and I'm like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? They're like, well, you know, there's no organization. We want you to organize it. And I said, okay. And next thing I know, um, people just kept coming in the office and Mr. Gordy kept... Barry Gordy doesn't work in the office. He works from home. So when he's in the office, it's a big deal. It's like, you know, they're like, the eagle has landed. The eagle has yeah. landed. It's like one of those things. So the fact that he kept bringing people in and out of the room, to me, was not unusual because I thought, this is his company. He works here. Right. It was people were just on pins and needles. Next thing I know, keep in mind, this is my first day. Volunteering. My first day volunteering. Next person he brings in the room is Smokey Robinson. So Paul, tell Smokey Robinson what you're doing. And I'm like, um, oh my well, I'm gosh. doing this, I'm doing this. And, you know, and, but I also knew Smokey. So, you know, that was like lots of hugs and stuff. And so at the end of the day, I went and met with the gentleman who um, was over the little area. And I said, okay, well, you know, when do you want me to come back again? And he looked at me, he goes, tomorrow? And I said, I can't, I work tomorrow. He goes, whoa, 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 what? Fast forward. I thought I was there to volunteer. I was hired. Really? Oh, and that was my first know. day of work. Oh my. And so he's like, oh, he no, said, no, no, I no, get no. paid for this? Yes. <laughs> he's Again. Like, he's like, you have to be here tomorrow and every day after that. And you have to go and quit your job now. And yeah, I'm like, well, and you got to move closer. Yes. And he's like, you got to, um, you know, and I'm like, well, I got to give a two week. No, nope. You can't give a two week. No, nope. Mr. Gordy expects you here. You know, cause they were like, wow. they couldn't go back to Mr. Gordy and say, yeah, <laughs> he thought he was volunteering. Yeah. So anyway, I did 
at least give a one week notice. I worked it out and I was working at Joe Bet Music Publishing. Wow. That is a great and you, you story. You seriously just fell into it because someone said, well, give him a call. And you went, all right, but I'll wait, do it. But hold on. He didn't fall into it, though. Well, no, he, not that he fell into yeah. it. But it, was, I, it was that old-fashioned Detroit hustle. I knew right. what I wanted. I wanted to be there. Yeah. No, but, yeah. but okay, let me, let, yeah. me, let me rephrase yeah. this. <laughs> not that you just fell into it, but you, you, you saw an opportunity. Right. You came home, you said to a friend, eh, and they said, give it a call, see what happens. And yeah. you did. So you took that and you just went with it. Yes. You Not sound ex- like a young Barry Gordy. <laughs> well, I mean, I would hope I would. That would be a dream. I mean, I don't, I don't throw that around because he was a genius, right? I really believe he was. Yeah, a but genius. but wasn't he? I mean, he was persistent, and he, he had a, a mindset that determination. There, there's one thing I learned from him, and to to add to your point, is that he's a very forward thinker. Some people they live like. They can't get past things, whatever. They can't get past Some their people, past. Yeah, they're just, they have this tunnel vision. They just are forward thinkers. And he's one of those people. He's always looking for the next big thing. And um, and and sometimes when you have that, I don't always have that skill. Some people but, have But you, I guess what I'm thinking is you knew what you wanted. You wanted to work for him. Yes. So like you kept you know, bouncing around doing what you had to do. Or putting to, yourself in his path when exactly. you knew he was going to be somewhere. Exactly. Right. So what brought you home to Detroit? Well, I worked for him for three years. Um, I managed his intellectual properties, um, readied his publishing company, which ultimately was sold. And when it was sold, I went to work at his house for him personally. Um, but eventually, um, you know, it was just kind of unfulfilling for me personally it's it now three years later. And um, in those three years, you know, the museum had needs and every once in a while they had a need for my skill set, which is that detail thing, right? Mm-hmm. I learned it all from Mr. Gordy Edwards. So yeah, every, even every once in a while, they would fly me back home just to self-correct some there. things, mm-hmm. right? Wow. And so eventually um, I just didn't see where we were going. We were just working, but not, anything big. And so I said, well, maybe this is a good time to go home. And at the same time, an opportunity at the museum came up and they were like, come on back to the museum. And I went back and I was the operations manager and I worked there for, um, a couple more years before full-time going back to school and leaving for another job. So, um, so, so basically from 1988 to 2000 and 2000, Mm -hmm. I was in that kind of Motown world, like almost 13 years. Wow, that's such a cool story. So what so then how did you end up back? So I, I so I left the museum because I'm now 30 years old and I, I never finished school. And I knew I wanted to finish school. I just didn't want to go when I was supposed to go, mm-hmm. right? And and so um there were some life changes going on. My sister was, you know, passed she eventually passed of cancer, which was very hard on me. And um, I just didn't know what was going on with the museum. There was no, in my mind, career, Mm -hmm, which, mm -hmm. you know, I was kind of wrong. But in my mind, there was no career. It was just a job. And so I'm like, I have to grow up. I need medical insurance. I need all these things, (laughs) right? So even though I love it, I don't, that doesn't mean I have to leave it. I just have to get a job. Yeah. Another job. What were you going to school for? I'm curious. Uh, I did not know. So because okay. he felt he should all of the <laughs> right. general requirements okay. and eventually settled with like a marketing degree. 
um, because I still didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew what I liked doing. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And so. What was it that you liked doing? Like, what did you know I you loved, liked doing? I loved working in like uh, the um, like nonprofit sector, like helping okay. people, um, being supportive because, you know, you, you don't go into that work to get rich. There's right pay. It doesn't work like that. Right? So you like serving. Yes. I like, I like, um, I love creating opportunities where people can be inspired and do something about it. Right. That's so like whether very it's, gordy. It, it's exactly that because I had figured I'd done all this fun stuff up to this point and it's because somebody gave me opportunity. So I loved that. So what, whatever kind of nonprofit community service work I could do, I would do. That you could do the same thing. Right. But they don't, you know, they don't say, you know, go to work and be a, or go to school and become a development officer. Like, do you know anybody who has gone to, mm-hmm. you may know a lot of people who do the work, but they all end up falling into it. Mm-hmm. So, um, how it all happened to go back to school was funny. I was driving to the museum one day and I just saw this debris flying on the freeway <laughs> and eventually something smashed on my car and my car window broke and oh, wow. it turned out it was like some utility company running a wire across the freeway bridge, but it didn't go through the piping. It went down to the freeway. So all these cars were hitting this major cable and it was like ripping things. Oh my gosh. So anyway, I wrote them a letter and I said, I don't think it's fair that I have to pay for this damage on my car. And they sent me a check for $3,000 saying, we consider this case closed. Now I wasn't savvy enough to know that I probably could have sued for tons more. Mm -hmm. But a little voice in my head said, you now have the money to go back to school. So I called Wayne State University and they were like, it's a good thing you called. In two weeks, every credit hour you had earned is going to expire unless you enroll in school. Oh, wow. So I cashed the check, enrolled in Wayne State and went back full time and worked full time until I graduated in 2004. Oh, wow. wow. And then you end up back at the museum in this new position. Not yet. No. No. Okay. So here's the, here's the funny thing. I, am I talking too much? No, nope. okay. no. So anyway, I, 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 when I left the museum to go back to school, I took a marketing job at the Rooster Tail in Detroit. Mm. So I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. the famous supper club and it's now a private events place. They had never in 40 years, family owned business had a marketing person, but I had known them from the events I had done there. And so I came in and kind of did the same thing, kind of just did an analysis, like what is your strong points? What are your weak points? How do we get to people? What do people want? And eventually became one of their top sellers, even though I was the marketing guy, because I identified a a business sector that, you know, that was thriving, but could have been better. For example, proms. They used to do a lot of proms, um, but they weren't getting all the schools. So I created this like prom package and sent it out to every high school. Mm -hmm. And my boss said to me, he goes, if you get one new school, I will give you a thousand dollars. Wow. Not only did we get one new school, we increased the revenue by $700,000 in one year. Yeah. Wow. Rooster Tail is a huge problem. Huge. It's now known as Million Dollar May. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every single day in May is booked. And then he's like, well, what else can you do that with? I'm like, weddings, church groups. Right. You know, I mean, all of it. And so, you know, he allowed me to create these packets and go after people. And during that time, I finished school. And then eventually, I knew I didn't want to be at the Rooster Tail forever because that's very hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, you never have a weekend right. off. You're often working six and seven days a week. And so from there, the, the, it's so weird how life treats you. I get a phone call one day. No joke, get a phone call. And it's from the executive director at the Jewish Community Center in West Bloomfield saying, I have your resume. Um, I'm interested in hiring you for a position. I'd like to meet you. And I'm like... 
are you sure you're not talking about another Paul Barker? I've never <laughs> applied to a job. I've never even heard of this place. Oh, really? There's this little Lebanese Catholic from Detroit being called by the second largest Jewish community center in the right. world to come in and for an interview. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I think you have the wrong person. And so anyway, he's like, oh, I'm sorry to bother you. So the next thing I know, I get another call. He's like, no, I got the right person. And he starts to read the resume. And I'm like, I'd never applied for a job there. Mm-hmm. Turns out I gave my resume to somebody who gave it to somebody who gave it to somebody who gave it to this guy. And this guy's like, I want to hire him. And so I was looking. So I said, well, let me go look. And so they set me up with a meeting with a gentleman named Hananlis, who was Florine Mark's son-in-law mm-hmm. of Weight Watchers fame. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. amazing, amazing family, right. amazing woman. Another Detroit. Yes. Wow. Another Detroit iconic. Yeah. And my and the guy who called me to do the interview said, if you impress Hanan, um, you'll have a job. And so um, Hanan was telling me what the center needed. They needed someone to run their events and organize their community groups because they have like 18 departments and all these buildings. And I said, I love it. I would love to do it. And so he told Mark at the time at the JCC that um, I like him. You know, we'll, we'll financially support hiring him if you guys want to hire him. And now I was at the Jewish Community Center. Oh so my for the gosh. next two, 10 years of my life, I was immersed in more community work, more um, activities, dealing with uh, partnering agencies that deal with special needs, um, uh, uh, you know, inter-faith um, uh, relationships. It, it was probably one of the greatest experiences of my whole life. They took me to Israel. We wow. had this interfaith tour of Israel. It was fin- fantastic. But during all this time, I never stopped doing things for the museum. Oh, really? So may I tell one quick story? Y- yes, please. So so I never left. Uh, the moral of the story okay. is I never left because that was always my... So my your hands weekend. were always... Remember I talked about rights and right? lefts? Yes. Yeah, but sure. at the end of the street was always this little house on West Grand Boulevard. But one day... Um, I was at a Paul McCartney concert at Comerica Park. And he was like, I went to the Motown Museum today. And I called my boss, or not my, she's now the boss, um, Robin Terry, who's the current CEO, chairwoman of Motown Museum. And I'm like, that's so cool. Paul McCartney was there. And he later decided to help restore one of their Steinways, which is still sitting in the studio today. And it was at Steinway. And I asked Robin, I said, Robin, what are you guys doing with that? Like, what are you going to do with that? And she's like, I don't know. What do you mean? I said, well, it's going to be coming home. Like, Paul McCartney helps restore a piano with Steinway. What, like, what are you going to do with that? She's like, I don't know. What do you think? She goes, give me one of your brilliant ideas. So I said, okay. So I laid out this whole plan about how we would fly to New York and do an unveiling with Barry Gordy and the piano, and we would play Money, That's What I Want, because Barry Gordy wrote it and the Beatles covered it. And, and we would unveil the piano and sell tickets for like $10,000 a person and limit it to 100 people and do a million-dollar fundraiser. So I sent it to Robin and she goes, I, I love your enthusiasm. She goes, you are just the best and I love this. Thank you so much. And I said, okay, great. Anyway, I'm camping up north and I get this text. This is like five months later. I get this text. Paul said yes from Robin. And I said, keep in mind, we never talked about it again. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think you sent this to the wrong person. I don't know what this is. And she goes, she goes Paul said yes. And I'm oh like, Paul said gosh. yes to what? Paul who? She's like, Paul McCartney said yes. Oh right. She goes, you got to be on a plane in three days for New York. 
Are and you so, serious? I'm dead serious. So I went into my boss's office, who, thank God, was the biggest Beatles fan on the planet. I said, I have to ask you a favor. <laughs> I said, I have this opportunity. I said, I don't need any time off. I'll do all the work on my weekends, but I got to do this fundraiser in New York with Paul McCartney. And he said, There's a statement. You can never I go? He make, was like, right. You know, can I go? But yeah, it was like one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. I've never done a fundraiser somewhere else, much less in New York City, and have to hire caterers and get people there for $10,000 a thing. It was amazing. And then Paul McCartney, by the way, is the nicest human being on the planet. His people are the nicest people on the planet. They, uh, but one thing they said to me, they said, you know, tell us your entire wish. Like, what do you, what do you wish would happen? And so we, you know, went over the plan again and they were like, they're, okay, t- they're asking you this? Because oh yeah, Paul McCartney wanted to be helpful. And so we told him what we wanted to do. He goes, that's all great. He goes, one thing though, it's the song. Nobody, nobody really tells Paul what to play. Paul will play what Paul wants to play. I'm like, oh, that's fine. He goes, but we'll ask him. And so then Paul McCartney gets on. He's like, oh, sure. That would, that would be fantastic. <laughs> we'll do that. And so I'm like, oh my God, now they're going to do it. And so... Um, we um, ended up going to New York, had this amazing unveiling, and they, Barry Gordy and Paul McCartney sang and played the piano okay, together. Okay, so I'm listening to this, and our listeners are listening, and you're telling it just like, yeah, so I told them this, and here's my idea, and like, it's just... Where does that come from? How does where does like, the confidence, the confidence in in yeah, and to think that these people are going to listen to you, Paul McCartney? I don't. I, it's so funny you say that. I'd never saw it as confidence. I I almost just see it as like the right thing to do, and you're advocating for the right thing to do for your idea. It's not even my idea. It's the right idea. It just happened but the, to come out the of the right mouth. idea for what. For the museum, for Paul McCartney to keep him engaged, mm. for, to to celebrate a generous act. It had nothing to do with me, but sometimes you're the person that identifies there's a need to do something about it, right? And so um, that's what I always advocate for. So like even the song, when they were like, well, I don't know, nobody tells. I just knew it was such a good idea, right? It was such a good idea to have these two sit on the same bench and play this song together. So so you're looking at it from, because I understand what Jean is saying about confidence. You're looking at it from, it's not a good idea because it's coming from you. You're thinking about what is it going to do for the museum? What is the cause? How are we going to serve exactly. these people? It's a good idea because it's really going to be how, a great way to service the museum and all the people that go through it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's about wanting to do the best work you can because it ultimately comes to, um, you know, serve others. And it's, so when you're championing doing the right thing, it, it always makes you feel good and it always moves the needle to the next thing. So let me ask you, cause I know, I know Gina's holding the fortune cookies, right. which is usually a sign, but I could go on for days here. We might have to have you guys leave and drive through the storm so <laughs> Paul and I can keep going. But if you were, if you were talking to um, 16 year old Paul Barker, and you were giving him advice and you were saying if you uh, about the future, about finding his passion, about pursuing his purpose, um, what what is the most important thing? Because like sometimes I think people listening to this can say, OK, well, 
he's got good luck and I don't have good luck. So this stuff isn't going to happen to me. Yeah. What well, would you say? I will say? say nothing infuriates me more than people say I have luck because everything was strategic and, and took a lot of risk, right? Mm -hmm. It was not guaranteed. But what I would say to 16-year-old uh, me is find what you love and do it. If you can get paid to do it, great but never let go of what you love. So like even when I said, I'll work here on my days off, I just want to be around here. I could have become a dentist, mm -hmm. but I would have still gone back to this place that was inspiring. And I think that's great advice for 16-year-old you and anybody who's listening. When you find something that you love, find a way to make something happen about it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to get paid, but get involved in it because you don't know what it will lead to. Absolutely. Let me ask you something else. You just said um, it was strategic. But when you're 12 and you're 16 and 18, is, is it consciously strategic or is it subconsciously? Like, did you at a young age always feel subconsciously that you wanted to serve? I, I, I would honestly say no. I would say I, at that age, I always, con I knew consciously that I wanted to see what made successful people successful. Mm. Like I wanted to get close to it. So I'm, I could understand what they went through more and then be like, well, if they can do it and in that situation, I can do it in this situation. Right. So, um, I think that was more it more, more just a desire to learn and being open to what the answers are. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, even if the answers weren't great, it doesn't mean it still would hinder me from doing what I want to do. It's just, or being where I want to be. It doesn't, you know, I mean, um, there's artists today who make entire albums in their bedrooms. You know, mm -hmm. they they don't have to be in a major studio or signed to a record label. Mm -hmm. um, they can still do what they love, even if that's not what pays the bills. They might still go to work every day. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you have to be happy, and and you know you have to do what makes you happy. So, Piece of you, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go. Okay. And, and do you think that if you do what makes you happy, that eventually you will make money at it? It will pay the bills. Absolutely. So, I mean, if I, if, I'll try to tie this up in a nice little bow. So. All this time I was doing events, events in nonprofits come with sponsors. Mm -hmm. And because I was doing the events, I developed all these relationships with the sponsors. So eventually the nonprofits were like, well, now you're in charge of the fundraising because you're the one with the relationships mm -hmm. anyway. So I learned relationships are everything. Yeah. Right. And um, eventually I became the director of development at the Jewish Community Center. And then Motown Museum called and said, we have, we're in this new, you know, $65 million expansion campaign, and we need a development person. And the person who called me was Robin Terry. Now, Robin Terry is the current chairwoman and CEO. Mm -hmm. We are the same age, and we grew up together there. Her grandmother is Esther Gordy Edwards. Wow. So she always knew me. Right. She's the one who advocated the Paul McCartney idea. And so she was like, we need exactly your skill set. Do you want to come back? And that's how I got back to Motown Museum, and that's wow. why I'm there today. And we're in the middle of raising... $65 million to grow to a 50,000 square foot facility. We're super excited. Yeah. And we've raised, um, oh, the original goal was 55 million, but you know, inflation and mm -hmm. everything else that came with the last couple of years. Um, but we've raised over 55 million to this point. Wow. And we're hoping by the end of this year to just nip it in the bud and keep building. And what, what will the future of yeah. the museum look like? Right. It, it It's a three-phase expansion. Phases one and two are complete, um, but it will be this full circle. Um, I'm going to do my best to do it in 60 seconds. That's so okay. So we, we not only want to, uh, we have three circles. We've, we've 
come to learn because you study these things. You don't just go with, you know, mm-hmm. what you think. Um, we've studied, we've learned that Motown, Motown's sweet spot is where um, artistry and entrepreneurism intersect, yeah. where artists become their business is their talent, right? Right. Or they become a writer or a producer, or we don't even care what it is. You want to sell widgets, but we want to promote entrepreneurism and artistry. That's so we incredible. started and built, our first phase was to restore three of Motown's original eight homes. Mm-hmm. Motown was eight homes. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know that. Yeah. But it was, um, that is now our education hub where we have songwriting workshops, um, singing competitions, writing competitions, um, and a new program where we uh, do upstarts for young entrepreneurs, no matter what their business is. Really? And help pair them with um, entrepreneurs in the neighborhoods and, wow. and give them success. That's so that's great. Hitsville Next. Um, we have this plaza that activates community with engagement so that people could just come and hang out and be around an inspiring place. And then the last phase, which we're getting ready to build, is this uh, third phase, which is the large 50,000 square foot new tower with new exhibit space, theater, restaurant, things of that nature. Wow. So what we will do is allow people come in like 18-year-old me, get inspired, and now that you want to do something, you can take some of our classes or participate in our programs and then elevate yourself to where you have knowledge of how to make that a profession. So still reaching out into the community. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. What do you look for when you hire somebody for to work with you or work under you or work at the Motown Museum? Well, What's important to you? That they never lose sight that it's a, it's a family affair. It is like a, when people go to work there, it's a family that piece has never left. It was that way for Motown. It was that way for the Gordy family. And and you're going to work hard. It's a small organization that works very hard, but you get the benefits that you would never count on, which is that inspiration you get around people. Um, just just amazing people. Like, And you never know when they're going to call. Um, there's a gentleman who, um, when the Rolling Stones came to visit, um, their whole tour came and he was just a super fan, like this guy who's their tour manager. And he's like a super fan. I don't want to say his name because I don't want to get in trouble, <laughs> but um, he's inter- he's internationally known. But every time he's in Detroit, he'll call or text me and say, just want to let you know I'm here. Um, if I can ever be helpful, why don't you come to the show? He, he was like Stevie Nicks tour manager, had us come to the show. Wow. He's coming. He's now Beyonce's tour manager. He's doing this big tour. But these are people who are just like me. They're at the peak of their careers, but they still come to this little house because they want the inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's amazing. And your story is incredible. Oh, and the people that are listening story. will be inspired by something that you've said that you don't even right. realize. Oh, we certainly great. will have to have you come back oh, we and have continue to. with this right. talk. And as the development happens sure. and as the museum expands and the third phase third phase opens, come and talk about well, that and, and share more Let's just more highlight some of the nuggets here, though, because part of it is you found, you knew what you loved, you did what you loved, and your goal was to serve. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about you or your ideas. So I think those are two really important nuggets. And the other thing is, is that you made it happen. Mm-hmm. Nobody did it for you. I, I, I would agree with all that. I would only add that, like, you can still satisfy all of the things you are dying to do if you're doing it for the right reason, mm-hmm. right? If you're not using an opportunity to just get what you want, but you find what you want to do in the opportunity. Right. So you're helping the larger cause, but at the same time fulfilling all the things you want to do. Right. And so that's, you know, that's, that's, 
the only thing I would add to that. What a great story. I feel like I'm talking to Barry Gordy's protege here. <laughs> definitely. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's a little bit of him in you, definitely. Uh, you thank you so much for sharing the story. It was so inspiring. Thank and we will this. have you back. Thank you for this. I love um, what you're doing. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Like um, visit the Motown Museum or how can they get a hold of you? Do you do speaking engagements or anything like that? I don't. This is probably only the second time I've ever spoke about this. We will make sure when really? we post that we have some contact information, the website. Yeah. The, that would be fantastic kind of information because we just reopened today we were closed for a construction period but uh, we're re- we're open we're actually already sold out for today but definitely go online buy your tickets in advance bring your out-of-town guests if they're not already bringing you um, we have a great gift store. We yes, can buy things you online. You I have so much Motown stuff at my house. Good. I actually have a little um, table that I got at an auction because our show um so we had um, the owner of the uh, Motown Mansion on on our show. She bought the house from Barry Gordy, and when she was moving, she did an auction. We um, did a live broadcast from the auction, so I have a table from his room in my house. That's awesome. Yeah. Look at you. I know. All right, let's toss our cookies, and the prongs oh, that yes. have faced you are, is the fortune that's meant for you, and let's add it with when you visit. So we'll read the fortune, and then we'll add to the end when you visit the Motown Museum. Okay. Are you ready? So just rip the cookie. Yeah, 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 just rip the cookie. They're just paper. Rip and pull out the fortune. So mine says, you will learn an important lesson from a stranger when you visit the Motown Museum. I love that. That's exciting. You will learn an important lesson from a stranger when you visit the Motown Museum. That's a perfect one. All right. Oh, I love it. Can I get on it? Yeah, go, go, go. Okay, so mine says stand up for what you believe in when you visit the Motown Museum. Oh, there you go. Okay, keep your face always towards the sunshine and the shadows will fall behind you at the Motown Museum. Paul Barker, thank you so much for the stories today. It was so inspiring. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you you for sharing, but we definitely are going to get you back on. And a big shout out to Bill McAllister, who is on vacation because he connected us. He did. And remember that sometimes the only mode of transportation available is a leap of faith. Thanks for taking a leap of faith. Have a great week and be careful out in the snow today. 